You're listening to The Dirty with Paula Haas, your podcast for real talk on self-care and mental wellness. I've gone from struggling with chronic depression that I thought I would never get out of to running a successful skincare brand and making it my life's mission to advocate for mental health, specifically for women just like us. This is our time to hang out, share some really hard conversations on how to actually enjoy our lives, but also have some serious laughs. Let's get into it. I am 16 years sober, and when I started this project, when I started The Dirty, I knew that this was going to have to be one of the first things that I talk about and tell you guys about. Um, I have talked about my sobriety and my alcoholism and my substance abuse disorder on other podcasts and with other interviews, but I really wanted to have the opportunity to tell the story fully from my perspective. And I also know if The Dirty is going to be about wellness and my wellness journey, it cannot exist without my sobriety. Because, I mean, just, just pretty obvious, like I was not living a great life. I was not taking care of my body or my mind or any of it when I was in active addiction. And ever since I got sober, it has been a constant evolution of my wellness journey. So let's get started. So my relationship with drugs and alcohol in high school was pretty normal. I mean, going back even further, my parents really didn't drink much. They didn't really smoke. I mean, kind of average for the 80s. My parents are amazing. They're both alive. I love them so much. They are immigrants from Poland, both of them. So I am first generation. And to be really honest, I'm not going to go too much into this because this is something that I've been pretty guarded about. Um, My father had a really severe mental illness. And that is a story that is for my immediate family and not something I talk too much about because he's still with us and I want to respect his privacy in his experience. But it did cause a little bit of um, emotional damage. (laughs) Um, He's doing wonderful these days. My mom is doing wonderful, but I definitely um, looked for love in all the right places as I was growing up, even starting in middle school. I was always chasing boys. I was always chasing affection. And we'll get to that shortly. Now, in high school, I, I kind of did, in hindsight, the pretty standard high school things. Um, I did kind of hang out with like the smokers and the pot smokers and a little bit of the drinkers, but I didn't partake in it as much as they did. Um, and it didn't like affect me in the way that in hindsight, like the way if you have experience with sobriety that, you know, like alcohol, when you're in full alcoholism, the way it affects you. I didn't drink or use in an alcoholic manner. I just kind of like did it to have fun and party. And in high school, I got really involved. I lived in New Jersey. I got really involved in the punk and hardcore scene in New Jersey and in New York City at that time. So it was lots of shows, concerts, pretty much every single weekend where you're going to a concert at either like a VFW hall or a firehouse or even going to the city to a club like CBGB's. And it would be anything from small concerts and shows to like these giant things like Warp Tour or, you know, any of the big festivals that... <clears throat> kind of got bigger as I was a little bit older. That was in like high school. And then even as I got into early college, pretty much that was my entire world. And I ended up dating this guy named Pete. And I'm just going to say, blanket statement, I am sorry to everybody that I dated, especially Pete. I was a very bad girlfriend. (laughs) 
<laughs> Probably until I met Matt. I was not a nice girlfriend. We're just going to leave it at that. <clears throat> so... Um, I was probably, oh, I was 18 when I met Pete and we dated until I was 20. So about two years, we were even engaged for a short period of time, which I feel awful about because obviously no one wants to call off an engagement, especially when you're that young. And Pete was straight edge. So straight edge was kind of this reaction to the hardcore like sex, drugs, and rock and roll of the 80s and even the early 90s. And it was um, abstinence from alcohol, from drugs, from smoking. Some even chose to be abstinent from caffeine. Um, there was even like some people that were didn't use any over-the-counter prescription medications, which is kind of like in hindsight, very silly in my opinion, but they did that. And then there was a lot of people that were either vegetarian or vegan along with that. When I was dating Pete, I did become straight edge. So for a period of time from being around 18 to when I was 21, I did not drink, I did not smoke, I did not do anything at all. And I think that really served me well. Um, it definitely kept me out of trouble. Like, I don't know what the alternative would have been, but... Yeah, it kept me, well, it kept me out of trouble in terms of like that, you know, in terms of any alcohol or drug use. And another thing that was very prevalent in this hardcore and punk scene was something called crews. Now, crews were basically groups of people that kind of hung out together. And crews could be anything from like a bunch of, you know, 16 year old boys who called themselves something silly and had like a funny acronym for it and ended up getting it tattooed or something. And that's pretty harmless. But then crews were also essentially gangs. Like, they were known as gangs by the FBI. There were some really big ones, specifically FSU, which was really big, like, in New Jersey and Boston and New York. And then I know there was another one called Courage Crew, which was, I think, out of Ohio. It was kind of, like, more in the Midwest area. And... I don't, it was very violent. It ha like a lot of these shows, these guys would go and pick fights with people and people would get very hurt. I know there were some people that got, there was like some murders that happened and we will get into that shortly. It was messed up. It was really messed up. Let's just, it was a very toxic, crazy situation. I mean, can you imagine like just knowing that you're going to go to a concert and very likely someone will get very badly beat up at this concert just for fun. Now I was with Pete until I was about 20. We broke up again. So sorry, Pete. So yeah, this was 2003 and this was right when Facebook was coming around. Uh, and I was quite the early adopter and this guy slid into my DMs on Facebook and I was 20 and he was 30, which at that time I thought was super cool, but in hindsight was a giant red flag. And the fact that he was in a crew and kind of like the leader, head guy in that crew was also a red flag. And the fact that he was being initiated into a very large crew, which may have been previously mentioned, should have been another red flag, but... Yeah, I did not see any of those red flags. So I will not name this person because it's just, I just generally don't like when I tell this story because I don't know, I just don't feel comfortable. He slid into my DMs and we started talking and he was very smooth and he was very sweet in the way that he would speak. And we started calling and texting and he lived in upstate New York and I lived in New Jersey and that was about six hours away from each other. So he, we decided that we were going to meet up halfway. 
photos were pretty grainy back then. It wasn't exactly like the videos and the photos that we're used to now. So I met with him halfway, like in the middle of nowhere in New York State. And he got out of his truck. And I just remember thinking, oh, oh, but um, he was a smooth talker. He was definitely a smooth talker. He was very charismatic. He knew the right things to say. He was he had some more money than I had. And we pretty quickly, you know, started seeing each other and started dating and started driving back and forth to kind of speed up the timeline a bit. That was fall of me being 20 years old. And by Christmas time, I did break up with him because there is a few incidents where he and I disagreed about something and he became very verbally abusive very quickly. And I just, I cut it off. And I remember like even some of the people that were in his crew like contacted me and were telling me off and telling me what a terrible person I was. It was just, it was a hot mess. So after New Year's, he, I don't even know what he did. I don't know if he was like a roadie or a bouncer or if he just kind of hung out with like this one band that is still kind of big in that scene. And they were on tour and he was down in my neck of the woods. I mean, I was in New Jersey. I think he was in Long Island, which is maybe like an hour or an hour and a half. We met up and I just remember sitting in the car with him and we were talking about kind of what had happened between us and he was very apologetic. And we just started dating again. The entire winter and spring of when I was 20 and into the summer, but winter and spring, we were together and I was driving the six hours to see him most weekends if like not like every other weekend and he had his own business so he was like flying me up and that was really cool like wow I've got this boyfriend that's gonna fly me somewhere and um it just it wasn't an easy flow to the relationship he was incredibly unkind he was controlling he was manipulative and then like weird things started happening so for instance once I was visiting him and he went to work and I woke up in the morning and the door was locked like in the bed, like from the outside of the bedroom and I couldn't get out of the bedroom and I was calling him and calling him and he wasn't answering. And this was an entire day. And his, that bedroom was not like on a second floor. It was like on a first floor, but it was a very high first floor because it was a high basement. And I had to, eventually I just jumped out of the window and ran around the front and there was a literal like slide lock, like, um, I don't know what it's called, but like one of those locks that slides across the door, locking me in there. And he came home and I was like, dude, what, what was that? And he had an excuse of that. He always does that because to keep the dogs out of the room. I was like, okay, yeah, that ma- that makes total sense until it happened again. Like the same exact thing happened. And actually, I think my memory might be wrong. I think the first time it happened, I didn't go out the window. And the second time it happened, I did go out the window. To be really honest, like we were intimate and he refused to let me use birth control. Like, which as an adult now, I understand that I could have at any point gotten myself birth control, but he would guilt me and say like, what, you don't trust me? Um, he'll take, you know, he won't let me get pregnant. I was like, okay, yeah, I trust, I I suppose I trust you. And then it became like very um, sexually like abusive and very violent in that way as well. And it just kept escalating. Like it just kept getting worse and worse, but it was almost like, what do they call it? Like a frog in a boiling pot where when you first get into it, you don't realize you're like, this is fine. And then the heat just gets turned up 
you know, very slowly until you don't even realize how bad it is. Like the things he's saying about you, the verbal assaults, the, there was a lot of like financial abuse. Like I didn't have a job. I, I didn't have any money. Like he had all of the control in the relationship. And then there was sexual control. It was it was awful. And I was afraid. I was afraid of him. He was, a, he was a gang member. He had access to weapons. So in the spring of when I was 20 and he was 30, we were in New Jersey and he was visiting me. To be really honest, like the night before was, um, he raped me like that night. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I was just crying and like trying to be really quiet, trying not to wake him up because again, like I didn't want to upset him. I all of a sudden realized I don't remember the last time that I had my period. Like I just don't remember. And I thought, oh crap, I could be pregnant. I waited until he woke up the next morning and I said, can you please drive me to the pharmacy? And I went and I got a pregnancy test and I peed on it and it immediately showed up positive. And I remember I started crying. Again, I was 20 years old. I was a junior in college. I did not live anywhere near this man. And even though we were together, the concept of spending my entire life with him was very scary. My whole life flashed before my eyes, like, what am I going to do? And I was not a believer. I was not walking with Christ. I didn't know God. Like, I didn't know what my options were. It felt like my options were either get an abortion or spend the rest of your life with this man. I remember like throwing the pregnancy test against the wall and crying. And I walked out and I looked at him and he was so happy. He was thrilled and he was upset that I was upset. And he was like, don't worry, this is going to be fine. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to move up to up, up, upstate New York and live with me. We're going to have an awesome life together. And I remember like we even went to Ikea that day. I think I needed to buy something. And I remember looking at cribs and he was just so excited. So I guess I was keeping that baby. Like, I guess we were going to figure it out. And he went back up to where he was living. And I remember I met up with my friend, Sarah and Sarah's amazing. This is nothing against her. Like if she hadn't said it to me, someone else would have, but I told her I was pregnant and I told her I was going to keep it. And she was like, you're insane. Like you're absolutely insane. She saw the writing on the wall. She saw the way he was treating me. She saw what was happening. And um, she said, you, you can't have this baby. And she she talked some sense into me. I, I mean, in hindsight, I wish I would have known what my options were either for adoption or keeping it and not being with him. I just didn't, I didn't know my options. And she did kind of talk some sense into me. And I was like, I can't have a baby. I, I can't tell my parents. I was terrified of telling them. And I just, I can't do this. So I hatched a plan that I was going to go to the health center at college and I was going to ask for an abortion. And I was going to tell them that I miscarried. So this gets really graphic. So I apologize if, if you have any trigger with um, abortion or anything like that, like I would really, or I would really recommend not listening. And if there's any children, I would also recommend not listening with them. I went to the um, health center and then they said, you know, go to this other location in a few days and they'll do an ultrasound and they'll talk to you about what your options are. I was like, okay, I can't be that far along. I knew that there was an abortion pill, which to me at that moment, at that time seemed like that was going to be the easy way out. Um, now I know that the abortion pill is a very cruel way to terminate a pregnancy, but we're not going to get into that at this time. I went to this other clinic and they did an ultrasound and they said, you're like 
11 or 12 weeks along. And they said, you can't take the abortion pill. We're going to have to do it, you know, like the manual way. So come back on this day and we will do it. And it was like this, it was this very strange week. I thought it was like very strange that you had to wait a week. I thought they were gonna be like, let's do it right now to like walk around still pregnant, knowing you were going to terminate that pregnancy was a very strange sensation. So I went in and I remember just laying on the table, staring up at the ceiling. And I remember just gritting my teeth and just being like, all you need to do is you need to lay there and be still and this will all be taken care of. And I had so much PTSD from that moment. We'll get into it, but I think all of the complex like PTSD, the CPTSD really led to me using drugs and alcohol the way that I did. And then I remember just sitting there and just being like, so when it was done, like thinking like, is my baby like in a bag like in this room like what are they going to do with it it was there and I like went into a room and I sat down and talked to the doctor and there was no counsel they like gave me some pamphlet and said something like if you bleed go to the hospital or like if you bleed a lot go to the hospital and that was it like you're just expected to move on with your life as if you didn't just do one of the most life-changing life-altering awful things that you could possibly ever do I pretend it didn't happen until, and I, I went home and I, I called him and I'm crying and I'm saying, I'm bleeding. And I went to the doctor and they said, I'm probably miscarrying. And you know what? For like a man that was so happy that I was pregnant, he really did not care that I was miscarrying. He did not offer to come down. He did not send flowers. He did not stop. He had a, he just didn't care, which should have been another red flag, but apparently it wasn't. And then a week later, I started having insane abdominal pain. Like I was working on some project with some, I was still in New Jersey. I was working on a project with some people in a class and the pain was like a hundred. Now I know it was like labor pains, but I, it was like a hundred times worse than any period cramps I had ever had. I started like throwing up. I started like having really bad diarrhea and I went to the emergency room and they did a scan and they said that there was still some tissue that was left from the termination. And I would have to come back tomorrow to have another DNC, which is just another word for an abortion. So I had to go home. They gave me some sort of medication to make me feel better. And I had to go back the next day and do it all over again. And I honestly do not remember any of the second procedure. I don't know if it was like the trauma or the medicine or anything, but I don't remember anything about it. And what did I do? Did I go to therapy? Did I, you know, talk to people about it? Nope. I just pretended it didn't happen. And a few months later, I left New Jersey and I moved to upstate New York to live with my 30-year-old abusive boyfriend who was in a gang. And it was going to be great for the summer. I was going to do it. And it was awful. Um, the fighting progressed. The verbal abuse progressed. And the whole thing that he would kind of sit on was, I've never hit you. I've never laid a hand on you. There's no bruises. There's nothing to show for it. So you have nothing to say. 
Like you can't prove it to anybody. This isn't when we had like phones where we could record the way someone was talking to us. There was no evidence. So he held that over my head so much, like basically just saying like, no one's going to believe you. Oh, I'm abusive. No one's going to believe you. And it was such awful gaslighting. It was just... It was terrible. I tried to leave lots of times, but I didn't have a car. Um, he had full control over me. I like barely had a job. He had all the money. I used his car. I lived in his house. I didn't pay any rent. He had full control over me. It was just hell. Like it was a living hell. It felt like I was a prisoner. I was lucky that I had, um, you know, met some girls that were like friends like girlfriends of his friends or like girls that were in the hardcore scene up there. And I did become friends with them. So in the end, that's kind of what saved me was my relationship with them. Because when I did decide to leave him, again, I didn't have any means to leave him. All of my real friends lived six hours away. I literally packed as much as I could in a purse and a black trash bag. And I I just walked out while he was at work one day and I called one of my friends, Jess, and she picked me up and he was calling around, threatening people, like threatening me, but I wouldn't tell him where I was. I eventually had my friends drive me back to New Jersey. I thought that maybe that would be the end of it. Um, I did end up dating someone else from that area and he ended up coming down to stay with me. And at that time, I still had like the majority of my stuff at ex-boyfriend's house in upstate New York. So like my computer, all of my clothes, like literally everything, like my entire life was there. We decided that me and my friend Nicole and then um, like two other friends decided that we were going to go back and just try and get my stuff. And I think I, think I called um, my ex-boyfriend. I was like, hey, I'm coming to town. I'd really like to get my stuff. I don't recall the details, but I do know that we showed up at his house. He was not home and his brother answered the door because his brother lived with us, lived with him. And I just said, hey, is, you know, so-and-so here? He said, nope. I said, I really just want to get my stuff. Like, can I please come in and get my stuff? I really should have had the police with me, but I didn't think of that. Again, like when you're gaslighted, you just don't even think like the police could help you. So I said, I really want to get my stuff. He said, well, you know, he'll be home. His brother said he'll be home soon. So just hold tight in the car. And I see a truck pull up and it wasn't my boy, my ex-boyfriend's truck. It was like one of his friends. And he gets out of the car and like his entire, like it was like a clown car. His entire crew got out of the car too. And he starts walking towards my friend Nicole's car and I was sitting in the passenger seat. And I remember opening the door and I said, I just want to get my stuff. Can I just get my stuff? And he said, where is Tony? I said, which is like the new guy that I had somehow started dating within those two or three weeks. I said, Tony's not here. Tony was really not there. He was like an entire city away. He said, where the F is Tony? And he starts looking in the back seat of the car. I said, Tony's not here. I just want to get my stuff. And he pulls something out from behind his back. And all of a sudden, my eyes feel like they are on fire and I'm choking and I'm coughing and I cannot figure out what is going on. And all I hear is him screaming the worst expletives you could ever imagine at me, just screaming at me at the top of his lungs. And then he drives away. And I realize that I've been pepper sprayed from like two feet away, like not an appropriate pepper spray distance. If there was an appropriate pepper spray distance, it did not even occur that I should at that point call the police. It did not cross my mind. I was like, I, in my mind, I had done something wrong and like maybe I should have not done it so that he wouldn't have retaliated against me. And I remember we drove back to Syracuse 
from the other city that we were at. I am calling my ex at this point and I'm just like, I just want my stuff. And I remember him just saying like, if you ever step foot in my city again, I will murder you. I will kill you. Your new boyfriend steps foot in my city. I will murder him. I will kill him. Don't you forget that. And I believed it. I 100% believed that he would do that. I mean, we had moved back to New Jersey. And again, the, the hardcore scene is very close knit. People travel, bands travel, obviously. And my ex started stalking me. I mean, I was afraid to go to any shows. Um, and then like to make it worse, the guys in his crew also started um, showing up at places that I was, showing up places where my new boyfriend was. Um, my new boyfriend got jumped by someone that was in the very large crew that my ex-boyfriend was getting initiated into. So it was basically a message. His entire side of his mouth got split open. It was just awful. I was scared. I was scared everywhere that I went. And I every time I saw a man of his stature, I would start having a panic attack. And every time I saw a red truck, I would start having a panic attack. It was just it was hell on earth. It was hell in my brain. The stalking was just the final straw. It was the final straw. So I did eventually request to have a restraining order against. I ended up getting a permanent restraining order against him. He showed up to court with his entire crew. He did get charged in the restraining order with assault, with kidnapping, which was like the locking me in a room, and then with terroristic threats, which is um, the stalking. I was having panic attacks. I was having terrible anxiety. And I, I do think it was like a combination of everything from my childhood with just my dad being emotionally unstable, but then the extreme trauma of that relationship, the extreme trauma of the abortion, of everything that happened after the abortion, of like not processing that. And then the assault, the verbal abuse, the gaslighting. I mean, my brain was just a complete wreck. I just didn't think of like going to a therapist or going to a doctor or anything like that. I just, I didn't know what to do. I had just turned 21 and I was still straight edge at that time. But I remember just thinking, I'm 21. Um, I can drink. Like, I, maybe I shouldn't be straight edge anymore. Like there's, I can legally drink. And I remember my friends came over and they had like this thing called Sparks, which is like this energy drink and malt beverage together. And I remember taking a sip of it and taking another sip. And I remember it just hitting my bloodstream and just thinking. This podcast episode is sponsored by Clean and Dirty Natural Skincare. Are you tired of skincare products that promise the moon but deliver so little? At Clean and Dirty, we craft our skincare line with two things in mind, purity and effectiveness. Our hero product, the Lavender Coffee Eye Cream, is a perfect example. Blending soothing lavender with energizing coffee oil, it's designed to rejuvenate and brighten your delicate eye area. Say goodbye to dark circles and hello to radiant skin. And the best part, our products are formulated without sulfates, parabens, or phthalates, ensuring they're cruelty-free and kind to your skin. Dive into the world of clean and dirty today. Visit us at cleananddirty.com. That's C-L-N-A-N-D-D-R-T-Y.com and embrace the beauty of natural, effective skincare. Trust us, your skin will thank you. Okay. 
Like, this is going to be okay. I think I might have found a solution to my anxiety. And I didn't, again, I didn't think like, this is going to be an alcoholic response. It's just like, I have really bad anxiety. We just kind of got to grit through it right now. And maybe like having a drink every once in a while is going to be a decent solution. And that kind of, that felt real for like a few weeks until I just started drinking more and more and I just hit the ground running. There was no gradual uptick. It was just, it was fast. It went from not drinking at all to blackout drunk within four to six weeks. I had completely lost the permission of how I drank, if that makes sense. Like I thought I had control over the way that I was drinking, but I had no control. Like the moment I took a drink, it was completely out of control. I definitely believed otherwise. I believed that I had some sort of control over it. I was 21. I finished out, that was probably like winter of my senior. Yeah, because I came back from upstate New York my senior year of college. And then I actually did a fifth year in college because I completely failed out of my senior year because I had such bad mental health issues. And I was a blossoming alcoholic. And I somehow made it through my fifth year, like barely cleared all the credits. And then I decided that I was going to move up to Syracuse with that guy, Tony, that I had met once I left um, the abusive boyfriend. So we moved to Syracuse. And I think within like three months, I broke up with Tony, kicked him out of the apartment. And I was just gung-ho, blackout drunk. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every single night, you start drinking at 7 p.m., you black out, you don't finish till like two or three. And I thought I was just partying. I thought I was just um, getting, you know, my energy out, just having a fun time as like a 21 year old, a 22 year old. I remember I had really, I was having panic attacks still. I didn't associate any of it with any PTSD. I just thought that I was having anxiety. And I asked my friend, like she said, oh, I have Xanax. Like, do you want me to bring a few over to your apartment? You can just try one, like see if it helps with your anxiety. If it does, you can go get some from your doctor. And it was really, it honestly was that. And she gave me one. I remember taking it and I was like, wow, okay, that really worked. Like, it was almost like I'm drinking, but I'm not getting drunk and I can like do this throughout the day if I need to, if I'm having really bad anxiety. So I remember she gave me a bag of like maybe, I don't know, maybe there was like six Xanax in there. And I went inside and I looked at those six Xanax and I said, I wonder what would happen if I snorted one. Within moments of getting a controlled substance, I was snorting it. And I remember I snorted it and I thought, this is amazing that worked so fast. I felt like I was on a cloud. I just thought, I wonder what would happen if I if I used alcohol with this. And I think that weekend I was off and running. That was my drug of choice. My drug of choice was drinking and snorting Xanax. And I now having been sober, I realize how awful that combination is and how dangerous that combination is. It did not occur to me. I did end up going to a doctor. He ended up giving me way too high of a prescription for it. I just remember just being like, this is fine. Like I'm prescribed this alcohol is legal. Like I'm not doing anything wrong. And then I remember like nine months in, someone introduced me to cocaine. And I remember 
snorting that cocaine. And then again, it was like the same feeling I had the first time I drank alcohol and the same feeling I had the first time I used Xanax. The same feeling I had the first time I used Coke was like, oh my gosh, this is the next level. Like, I can't believe I've been missing out on this for so long. This is the solution. And this is what's going to make me feel so much better. And I, I didn't know like in my brain how dangerous it was, but I just, it did not occur to me again that mixing alcohol, Xanax and cocaine together was so dangerous. Like for that, like two years used everyone in front of me. Um, whether it was a man, whether it was a friend, I just, all I cared about was drinking, using drugs and partying. Um, and I think I've made amends to most of those people, but I mean, I feel awful. I wasn't, I was a terrible friend. When I was 23, I booked a flight to Prague, um, in the summer because my parents, they're from Poland. They had an apartment in Poland. I was going to go to Poland, hang out with my brother for a little bit. I booked a flight to Prague. So I was going to like fly into Prague, go from Prague to Poland, from Poland to Germany, and then fly from Germany back to Syracuse where I lived. And I packed all my Xanax because it was prescribed. So I could like easily take it around with me. And that trip was a mess. It was an absolute mess. I was with my friend Hillary. I was an awful friend to her. Like I regret that so much the way I treated her. And it was just a bender. It was a bender. I think we drank literally every single night. I was just abusing all the Xanax really fast. Everything was a blackout or a gray out. Um, I remember like even I partied one night with my brother and he took the next day off work to try and like have an intervention with me because of how out of control I was. And I remember just like screaming at him and being like, I'm fine. I'm not doing anything wrong. I just got a little out of control while drinking. And I thought I was having a great time. Again, it was like this, I don't, I heard it called something the other day, but it was like this time where everybody who was like in the hardcore scene was going to the clubs and like digital cameras were just coming out and you were like it was like the Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen like Lindsay Lohan Paris Hilton era were like being like trashy in a club was fun and I thought I was having a great time but inside I was just dying like I was so ashamed of my behavior but the only way to get rid of that shame was just to just do it all over again there was no other solution and when I was in Germany I was in a bar and we had been traveling I think for like 10 or 12 days at that time and this guy came up to me and he started speaking like American English to me. And he was really handsome. He was super hot. And I convinced him to buy me a drink. And we started hanging out. And that person was actually Matt. He just like drank normally. He was just having a good time backpacking through Europe. He, I don't think he like realized, because I obviously wasn't using the drugs in front of him. I was going to the bathroom and using them. I just think he thought that like maybe I was getting really drunk every night. So we hung out for like a few days. And he lived in California and I lived in Syracuse and I went back to Syracuse and we just started chatting. He started flying back and forth um, from Syracuse and I started flying back and forth from California and I don't remember when, but I remember there was a moment, it must've been like right after my 24th birthday, which again was in September where he addressed it and was like, you need to calm down like with the with the drinking. You need to, I think at that point he realized that I was abusing Xanax. He, I don't think he, he did know about the cocaine because I remember lying to him a lot about it. I remember really, um, minimizing the amount that I was using it because that I was like, obviously this is the shameful part. And I remember him saying like, will you, cause he was in California and I was in New York. Will you please not like use tonight? 
I, and I was going out again, like three nights a week. And I, I remember every single night saying, yep, don't worry. I'm just going to have like one drink or I'm not going to drink. And every single night was a blackout or a gray out. I was doing something I regretted. It was just awful. And every single morning I would wake up, I would not remember what had happened and the shame would creep back in again. By God's grace, I never got arrested. I never overdosed. I never got sick. Like, I don't know how I stayed alive doing this. I was drinking and driving. I was using and driving. I was mixing drugs. I do not know how God kept me alive. Obviously, he's got some sort of big plan because I'm, I somehow stayed alive. I never would suggest that anybody gets sober for another person, but it is what happened for me. I knew that Matt was amazing. I knew that he was something that I had never met, like someone that I had never met before, and I was worried that I would never meet anyone like him ever again. Second, the shame was not going away. I realized at that point, and this was January of when I was 24 years old. So this was 16 years ago. So January of 2008, I realized there was some, so many nights in a row where I had promised him, I will not drink tonight. I will not use tonight. And I did that. I realized there was something very wrong with the way that I was drinking and using. I went to a party in Rochester which is about an hour away from Syracuse. And I promised him I wouldn't drink or use. He was, in, he was in California that night. And by the end of the night, I was drunk. Um, I think I had stored some Xanax. I'd brought cocaine off of someone in a bathroom. I was in some DJ's hotel room. I was in the bathroom fighting with my best friend Hillary at that time over wanting to use the rest of the cocaine. She wouldn't let me. And then all of a sudden... I woke up the next morning in Syracuse an hour away. So full blackout. And that was my bottom. Like it wasn't, again, anything dramatic. But what was dramatic is, I mean, I haven't touched upon this at all, but I was raised Catholic. I really enjoyed my Catholic upbringing. I, I loved God. I loved Jesus. I loved everything about it. I found a lot of comfort in prayer, but obviously I was not walking with the Lord at that time. And... I got off my bed. It was like 11 o'clock in the morning. I had just woken up and I fell to my knees and I just started sobbing. And it was like guttural. It was what I realized now was like a full deliverance. Like God released the addiction from me. I I remember like almost feeling like I was dry heaving. It was coming out and just like yelling out loud alone in my little apartment in downtown Syracuse. God, please fix me. I cannot do this on my own. I cannot get sober on my own. I need you to fix me. I can't do this. I knew that I hit my bottom because the I had tried for so long to get back up and nothing was working. And I just kept sliding lower and lower and lower and lower. And I had this moment of perspective that if I didn't change something really soon, it was going to get bad. I was going to lose Matt and then I was going to lose my friends. I was going to lose my apartment. And I think I also realized very quickly that like I was playing with fire. Like I was playing with fire with the drugs that I was mixing and I was one bad night away from an overdose. And I have not picked up since that day. And the reason that I know that it was God that delivered me in that moment is I know now 16 years in sobriety after having gone through all the steps of AA, countless friends that work in the field of sobriety, a husband that his 
a majority of his career is helping people who are dealing with substance abuse disorder, I realized that combining alcohol and benzodiazepines, especially so frequently, and especially snorting the benzos, Xanax, basically, first of all, I should have overdosed. Second of all, the withdrawal from that should have been terrible. I should have gone to some sort of program. I should have gotten some sort of withdrawal symptoms. Nothing. Nothing happened. I literally got up. I googled um, AA meetings. The first AA meeting that I ever went to in Syracuse was an all men's meeting. If you have any experience in AA, you, you know like kind of what it would be like a woman walking into an all men's meeting. They let me sit. Like they were so nice. They gave me a list of like local meetings that would be good for me, women's meetings. I hit the ground running with AA. I was going at least twice, if not like three days a week or maybe even four sometimes. And I got really involved in it. And I started working through the steps. So I admitted that I was powerless against alcohol. There it is. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I do remember now that I read that, that that first step, I held onto it for probably the first year. I just remember thinking like, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic. I was going back and forth for a really long time. And I just remember thinking, am I powerless over alcohol? Do I have any power over it? I remember just thinking like, nope, I have no power over it. None. It has the complete power over me. Okay. Remember checking off that first part of that first step. And I remember reading that second part that our lives had become unmanageable. And that I remember even saying that to people like, I have no claim that my life is manageable at this moment. I remember thinking my life is incredibly unmanageable. Okay. So I remember thinking like, got it. Step one, we're good. And that is really what I clung to for quite a while. Um, and then God came into the picture, right? We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I remember kind of deconstructing that one as well. Can I restore myself to sanity? I've tried. I've tried for about three years and it was not working for me. I literally cannot restore myself to sanity. I could not restore myself to sanity. So only a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And I remember very quickly made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. That step is so tender. I remember just being like, I can't do this. You, you have to do it, God. And and very early in AA, I, I got a sponsor and I started going through the big book with her, which is kind of like the Bible of AA. Um, and a, very quickly, I went through one, two, and three. I remember just being like, let's do this because I don't want to feel that way anymore. And very soon after that, I got sober in January. Matt moved out in February. Like I knew that if I went back, he was leaving, he was gone. And I was going to lose this man that I was very deeply in love with for we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I think I started doing that. That's step four when we moved to Massachusetts. So I got sober in January. And then in June, we both moved from Syracuse to Massachusetts. And again, I would never recommend, they call it, um, Oh, they called it geographic cure. I would not recommend a geographic cure for anybody. But all those things did work in my favor because when I moved to Massachusetts, none of the bars that I went to were here. None of the people that I partied with were here. I could kind of like start anew in AA and I like really dove in. So I started doing that search, that searching and fearless moral inventory of myself. And that's when I really started digging in admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. 
Now, this is what we call the fourth and fifth step in AA. And like you literally write down all of the bad things you did in your life. And that was hard. That was really hard because I was, I had had no time to process any of the trauma because I went straight from traumatic events into full addiction and then just right into sobriety. So I am still 16 years sober, just now processing so much of that trauma through therapy, through specifically EMDR therapy, which has been really amazing, through um, even just like deliverance, through prayer, through healing. Like God is, it's an onion. Like he is unwrapping the layers, but I give so much credit to AA. I did that and I started sponsoring other women and I started going to meetings and and I had a good like um, six or seven years in AA where I was very active and I owe my life to the halls of AA, to the big book, to the people that helped me on my sobriety. I did stop going about the time that I was pregnant with Juniper, who's now not, she'll be 10 in a few months um, because that was still when like everybody was smoking and Matt was working Eve shift for the state police. And like, I couldn't bring a baby to an evening meeting of AA and like, I didn't want to walk her through all that cigarette smoke. So I kind of just fell away from AA, but I went through all those 12 steps when Junie was three and Rowan was one, not even like two and a half and not even one is when I was saved from like the perspective of like Christianity is when I truly gave my life over to Jesus when I started attending church. So in hindsight, like it was really only about two years where I wasn't attending AA and when I wasn't in a church yet. I do think that like my church family has replaced my AA family. And I wouldn't say it was a replacement. It was just a natural progression of my life because with a church family, we all have kids. We kind of all raise our kids together. I 16 years, 16 years of sobriety. It hasn't been easy. Um, I'll get into it in another episode if you guys want me to, but I ended up in an inpatient psych program and to outpatient site programs. When Matt was in the state police academy, that was incredibly challenging. Um, I mean, I had was having suicidal ideations at that time. I struggled with a lot of mental health issues during that time. And God has really healed me over those years. I am not the woman that I was when I started drinking and using, which was 19 years ago. I am not the same woman I was when I got sober 16 years ago. And I'm not the same woman I was even 10 or five years ago. And that's okay. I was listening to, I think it was like a TikTok or something. And it was talking about how like the term you've changed can sometimes be an insult. Like, oh my gosh, you've changed so much. But the response was, I really hope that I've changed. Um, I hope that the people that I knew back then almost don't recognize the person that I am now because I've evolved. Like the Lord has refined me. The Lord has every year I just grow closer and closer to him and my relationship with him grows. And I have this amazing family now. My marriage is stronger now than it ever has been. My parenting is stronger now than it ever has been. My friendships are stronger now. If you're watching this and either you're struggling with substances you don't have to suffer for another day. Like you just don't have to feel that way anymore. Or maybe you're sober and like you kind of still hate life. You don't have to feel that way anymore either. Like there's, there's people and places that are willing to help you. 
And I hope you will seek them out because I will never claim my life is perfect. We are about to walk into an absolutely insane season in my life right now. And maybe recording this for an hour has been like my way of not thinking about it. Like Matt is literally deploying to the Middle East in a few days. So God help me. We are about to be thrown into the fire. I went this entire time without crying. We are about to be thrown into the fire. The Paula of back then could not have imagined any of this, right? I couldn't have done any of what we are doing now. And Matt is going in as a chaplain. He is going into the mission field in the Middle East to help these soldiers. And I get to be his wife by his side. The woman who is binge drinking, who is abusing her body, who is abusing her mind, who is using drugs and alcohol and men and just ruining every relationship. I hope I've changed. I'm not that woman anymore. So yeah, I hope I do run into somebody that I've met before and they say you've changed because I have. I really have. And I'm happy for that. I made it. I got through it. And I thank you guys for listening. This has been super healing. I thank you always for your support. I love you. And what do they say in AA? There is a hope. There is a solution. There is a solution. And that solution is God. I can promise you that. I love you guys. And that wraps up another episode of The Dirty with Paula Haas. Thank you so much for sharing this time with me. I hope today's conversation gave you something to think about or maybe even a reason to smile. Don't forget to take a moment for yourself because you do really deserve it. Keep striving, keep laughing, and keep taking care of that beautiful mind of yours. For more Real Talk, make sure you subscribe and join us next time. Take care of yourself and remember, you are not alone in this journey. This is Paula Haas signing off from The Dirty. Stay well and see you soon.